0: weeks, is kind of taking this verse of John 3, 16, this really common, familiar uh, scripture, and we've been looking at it kind of from different angles, almost like a diamond or a prism. You look at it from a slightly different angle, you see something different in it. And so we've been looking at love and what love really means, and this week, what I think we're going to see is love is more complex than we've made it in our culture. And that complexity is going to come through today. In our first week of the series, we talked about God's initiating love. God so loved the world that he sent, he sent Jesus. And then we talked about God's generous love and what did it mean for Jesus to give his life? His sacrificial love was this idea that God took a loss for our gain. And then today we'll talk God's saving love. But I I think culturally we've begun to think of God and his love a little bit too simplistically. We are in uh, the Great Lakes region and uh, lighthouses, I don't know if you've noticed this, lighthouses are a thing here. I drive around town and I see, I feel like I see lighthouses everywhere. People love lighthouses. There's pictures of them, people have them hanging on their wall, there's a lighthouse in your bathroom that says something, you know, some nice saying, and you're like, why is that in the bathroom? I don't know, but it's here. Um, Driving around town, there's people with miniature lighthouses in front yards, and lighthouses are a big thing. I would have to say, um, I'm not innocent of the lighthouse love, I actually have a favorite lighthouse, which I don't know, how many of you have a favorite lighthouse in the world, right? You just added yourself as almost as nerdy as me. So, I have a favorite lighthouse in the world. I'm actually, it's, uh, that's the Greenpoint Lighthouse in Cape Town, South Africa. And I remember I didn't care a thing about lighthouses. And Steph and I were on vacation, and uh, we came around a corner, and I saw this square building with these diagonal lines, and, and the sea is on one side, and the mountains are on the other. And I thought, that's something. I like that thing. And then all of a sudden, I found myself noticing lighthouses everywhere. Well, Uh, not so long ago, a month or two ago, I was at the National Museum of the Great Lakes uh, up in Toledo, right on the Maumee River. And they have um, this incredible map that has every lighthouse on the Great Lakes. It has it all pinpointed out where each one of them are. Every single lighthouse is named and shown there. And what I didn't know, and I don't know if you knew this, was each lighthouse has a unique blinking pattern. And so, for instance, one will blink red, white, three seconds off, and then red, right three seconds off and then the next lighthouse over has its own unique pattern it'll go red and then five seconds off and then red and five seconds off and some will go white white blank white white but and so every single lighthouse on the great lakes has a different blinking pattern including different colors so that the mariner when he's out in the water he can see on the distance this blinking light and by the chart he can know exactly where he is simply based on the light coming from the lighthouse I thought this was fascinating, more fascinating to me, was the juxtaposition of the lighthouses in the museum. I thought the most telling thing about where the lighthouses were in the museum was what was right behind them. They were next to the exhibit of tragedy of the Great Lakes. Literally, if you turn your back on the lighthouse exhibit and you look the other direction, what you find is the exhibit of all the shipwrecks and the rescues and the tragedies and the losses. There's lifeboats. There's life preservers. There's even these weird-looking, like, life suits they have now. As technology gets better, somehow they keep getting bigger. When we think of lighthouses, though, we think of these majestic structures romantically perched on a rocky coastline. We think of these beautiful landmarks. And what they are, they're really enormous towers of warning. What a lighthouse is telling you is not, look at me, I'm beautiful. It's, you're in dangerous water, be careful. Be careful. And so I'm going through this museum and I see the, the number of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. And I couldn't believe the number. And I'm thinking like, okay, I mean, been around for a while, okay? 100, 200, 500, 700, 8,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. Meaning that for the last 250 years, on average there is one shipwreck every 11 days. I was astounded. We get comfortable looking at lighthouses, but it's so much more complex than we think. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I would offer today that John 3.16 is a lighthouse verse of sorts we get really comfortable looking at John three sixteen. It's beautiful, it's picturesque, it's perched right there on the corner. It's a great verse to just kind of have up on the wall. God so loved the world, love. And yet to get there, to understand what this love is really about, the complexity of God's saving love, we actually have to take a step back and realize that that it exists there almost as something of a warning. That there's something that we're being saved from. There's a blinking light in that verse that's telling us something. And to get to where that is, we have to drop back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Psalm 145. Psalm 145 verse 14 says, The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living Thing. the lord is righteous in all his ways and he is loving towards all he has made the lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth he fulfills the desires of those who fear him he hears the cry and saves them the lord watches over all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy notice this in verse 16 it's basically saying that god is the sustainer of life so he's not only the author of life the creator of life but it says god is the sustainer of all living things verse 17 says he loves all that he's made this is called common grace it's general love god loves everything he's made he made us all he sustains us all loves us all and then verse 20 says the wicked he will destroy which creates contradictory or complicated feelings in us god loves god loves god loves god loves and the wicked he will destroy he'll destroy that which he loves? Which makes us ask the question, can you love and condemn something simultaneously? In the book of Ezekiel, God is speaking to the Israelites through the prophet. Tells them, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die people of israel the god of the universe is speaking to his beloved people and he says i don't want to judge you but i'm going to judge you he's pleading with the people to turn you can almost hear a desperate yearning why will you die when the path is clear this is love and wrath in the same sentence can you love and condemn something simultaneously can love work like that some in the room would say you know you you really can't do both if you really love something you could never condemn it you could never you wouldn't do that if you love it you just love it ask my five-year-old if that's how it works anybody with kids if you love your child do you ever discipline your child yes time out is a form of condemnation spanking or when i was growing up the wooden spoon out of the drawer I have a cousin that was uh, so good at earning condemnation that I, I watched his mother break many wooden spoons over his backside. Break them. And he would smile and go, that all you got? And she'd pull out another spoon and we'd just keep going. And it, Did she love him? Not in that moment. Yes. Was she condemning him? Was there consequence? We, we sort of kid, right? Like, well, you know, that's not the same thing. Unfortunately, though, lots of people in this room have loved ones who have chased destructive things, illegal things, unhealthy things. What we realize is there are deep costs to that. Sometimes uh, we lose contact with an adult child or, or we become estranged from spouse or grandchildren. We we learn in these moments, in these real-life situations, that what is for your good doesn't always feel good. The same as disciplining a five-year-old happens with a parent and a 35-year-old. And sometimes what's best for you doesn't feel so good. If you've ever had to dispense tough love, this is a truth that you know. There's no joy in wrath. Tough love often costs the lover a whole lot more than the recipient. If you've ever dispensed tough love, you know that. It costs the giver more than the recipient Every single time to love someone fiercely is to be willing to hold a line to seek their flourishing over their approval or acceptance of you to love someone fiercely is to be willing to seek their flourishing over their approval or acceptance of you because if we didn't have wrath if there was no discipline if there was no condemnation then you'd have ever-flowing love and approval and affirmation and yet what you sacrifice in that is you lose the person's flourishing I could never discipline my kids, and I could raise terrible, rotten children to be terrible, rotten adults. And they would love me and affirm me and approve of me because I never, ever showed my wrath. And yet what I know to be true is as terrible, rotten, undisciplined adults, they would not flourish, but they would fail. And so my love, my desire for their flourishing is actually the ferocity that leads me to discipline. This is love. Tough love costs the lover more than the recipient. Ignoring evil isn't apathy. Ignoring evil isn't love, it's apathy. When you ignore evil, oh, we'll just let it go. We'll just brush this under. We'll just ignore it. We'll just keep going. That's not love. That's apathy. When you really love someone, someone in a destructive place, you don't shrug your shoulders. You shake theirs. You say, wake up. And a little like God, we say something along the lines of, why will you die when the path is clear? God's love and wrath can absolutely go together. And this is the complexity of love. This is what we've been kind of aiming at for this entire month as we walk up to this Sunday, is to understand the many faceted sides of love and the complexity of this love that we receive from God. If you tend to collapse God's love as a warm and fuzzy thing without any wrath, What you've done is reduce God to a flat and one-dimensional domesticated idea. The God who only loves and has no wrath is nothing more than a house cat. Largely apathetic and vaguely approving. We don't need a God like that. Instead of being a glorious, multi-dimensional creator and redeemer of people who yearns for your flourishing and will stop at nothing to bring it. The house cat version of God sees suffering and just thinks happy thoughts. Sees famine and goes, oh, you know, we'll take a nap. No. Scripture is clear that God thunders for justice. If you collapse God's love into just saving love, just this idea that God loves us all and sent Jesus and so he just is here to save and all he does He's just saves, save, 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 saves, save, save, and everybody's going to get it because that's God. God just has to save everyone. Collapsing God into that is turning God into a saving force that doesn't have deep concern for those who are wondering and in danger. You reduce God to a personal safety blanket that maybe everybody gets. No, God sees his children lost and in pain and lacking flourishing. God isn't just happy to snuggle the saved. God is fiercely seeking the lost. Both views flatten God, and both are unbiblical. Both steal the richness of God's love. Both views are based in how hard it is for humanity to conceive of the depth and complexity of God's love. Philosopher Plato said, human love is the child of poverty. Human love is the child of poverty. What he meant by that is that because we lack something, we seek love to complete us. So you hear it all the time. You're opposites attract, right? This is Plato's idea that that if I lack certain things that I will go and seek out a mate that will fulfill that. And, and so in having a pair, we can be one whole because I lack but she has what I, what I lack and so now we're, we're actually fulfilled. My job in premarital counseling is always to undo this idea that somehow another person can complete me which isn't true, or that someone else exists to make me happy or to somehow make me a better person. Whenever I hear a young couple say, well, she she just makes me a better person, I'm like, no, she doesn't. No, no, she doesn't. She makes you a deluded person, and you feel good about yourself now, but give it a couple years, you're going to see. You're the same person you were. My job is to undo that and help us all see that humanity wasn't created to fill that void in others. Humanity wasn't designed to carry that load of completing another person. If human love is the result of our poverty, God's love is the result of abundance. C.S. Lewis would say it this way, God has no need in and of himself. God is not in it relationship with us, he's not in it for gratification, he needs it not. So Jesus coming to earth is the purest form of God's love for us. And it's what makes God's love so reckless that a complete and perfect God opens himself up to be pained by our wickedness. That humanity is offered the opportunity, not just to choose God, but to reject God. So what we read in the scripture is true. We sin and we fall short and we ignore the light. We walk through the darkness and the lighthouse is on the shore signaling danger. We think, no, I got this. I can do it myself. I can navigate this myself. So what do we do is we turn our backs to the light and we attempt to walk through life on our own and one after another we end up shipwrecked pieces at the bottom of the lake one after another we find ourselves mariners lost in the waves wondering how we got here and we can't see the lighthouse anymore because we've turned our backs to it whether we acknowledge it or not to be human is to be a ship sinking in the stormy waters of sin the base reality of every human being we are each a ship sinking in stormy waters And the cost of our rejection and this sin is that we have to be judged. Because a just God, not a house cat God or a safety blanket God, but a just God, a dynamic God, a living God, can't allow injustice. Can't let wrongs and evils go unpunished. Any more than if someone came to your house and burglarized it and took everything that you had and left it a mess and they found him two days later that we have what's called a justice system, don't we? That that person would be prosecuted. That person would have to pay for the crime that was committed. Because we have a justice system. Because we believe in justice. Because we can't just let things go unpunished. Otherwise, it's anarchy. That's not love. The same is true with God. Because we have wronged God. Because we fall short, there is a justice system cosmically set up. And there's a penalty to be paid. The solution is John 3.16. That for God so loved the world, the lost and the stubborn and the wicked and the rebellious, that God sent Jesus into the storm of our unbelief and into the storm of our disobedience and into the path of his own wrath, he sent his son. God sends the ultimate rescue mission in Jesus and he says, turn, just like in Ezekiel, turn. Turn from sin, turn to Savior. There is no scenario where turning from sin doesn't equal turning to Jesus. As you walk through life, there is no scenario where turning from sin doesn't equal turning to Jesus. Because salvation isn't the absence of wrong, but the presence of right. Salvation is not the absence of wrong. It's the presence of right. Jesus comes to right the world, to rescue his beloved, that whoever should believe in him, whoever should grab onto him, whoever should put their trust in him, whoever should leave their life in his hands, whoever should trust in the light, no matter how dark the storm, should not perish, but have eternal life. That is to say, whoever trusts in him, whoever sees the light on the shore and says, that's how I will live my life, by the guide that is given, that person will not drown in the sea of sin, but will know the breath of life as we are carried along in Christ by this Jesus. This Jesus who was willing to know our struggle and pain, this Jesus who showed us the ultimate tough love being rejected so we might be approved giving his life so we might accept his life and escape death this jesus who was willing to take our sin and shame and carry it as his own on the cross this jesus who was willing to experience death and hell so that we might avoid it this jesus who died and was buried was embalmed in spices as every dead man was and sealed in a borrowed tomb A tomb that could not hold him. Death was no match for a living God because while we were yet enemies of God, God sent Jesus to be the enemy of death, to radically and recklessly love us by taking our place on the cross, by restoring our life and overcoming the grave. Today, we celebrate the death of death in the death of Christ and the birth of life in his resurrection. This is love jesus is love jesus is alive and we get to live inside of his rescue every single day his rescue is extended to all who might turn as the bible says all who would turn jesus offers us the hope of salvation and then tells us to go and do likewise so his first offer is turn Why would you walk down the path of darkness? Why would you walk willingly into death? Why, if you can see the lighthouse on the shore, would you ignore the light that says there is a way to hope? And what John 3.16 says is that any who believe would not perish. That any who would anchor their sight on Christ, who would say, I'm going to follow that light, and I don't even have to understand it completely, but I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came from heaven to be one of us, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, and that he was risen on the third day for me, for my sin, and his resurrection was for my life, I believe that. Then effectively that is to say, you shall not perish. That the ultimate inevitable shipwreck of your life has been erased, and you're safe. He says, do likewise. If you're a follower of mine, if you love me, if you're, you want to be more like me, if, if you're modeling your life after me, then we live a certain way. Then as followers of Jesus, we don't simply soak up the the light that we have and go, man, that felt good, now I'm safe. We turn again. And so having turned from sin and turned towards Jesus, now we turn and with Jesus we face the larger world. God has called us to be a lighthouse in the city, a beacon point of hope for those in darkness. And so we celebrate life today. We live out that celebration and we display Jesus' radical and saving love in every moment of our day. The offer on the table today from Christ is A, if you want to turn from sin, then turn towards me and find yourself safe. And if you've already done that, then join me in being a radical beam of light into a world that is desperate for hope, a world shipwrecked and stuck in sin. And if we choose to walk with Christ We choose then to be part of the light. In every moment of our day, in every relationship along our path, we get to be the incarnation of God in this place. The Holy Spirit is in us. God's very presence. So when we run across somebody and they they seem stuck in the mud, when we run across somebody and they seem awash in darkness, we don't simply have to go, gosh, I remember being there. We go, no, I can help you. I can show you. I've seen it. I've been there. And we can extend the hope that's been extended to us. We can extend the light that first pierced our hearts. And so Easter is not only a day that we celebrate because we remember being lost and now being found. Easter is a day that we celebrate because it's this trampoline of sorts that remind us that we have a bounce in this life. We have a hop in our step. We are left here for a purpose. There is more left to do that there are people tossed on the waves of life and they're waiting for God to send his incarnation and what Christ did for us, we can point them to him for others. Say there is a lighthouse on the shore. There is hope beyond your sorrow. There is fellowship in your loneliness. There is community in your isolation. There is a Christ who is risen. Amen? I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we continue to worship. We're also going to take communion. Communion.